We're all advocates. We're the backbone. We're the backbone of the nation. We're the backbone of the state of Texas. Creates a healthy community. So, you know, eat local, buy local, support your local farmers. Welcome back to another episode of The Advocates. I'm Wade Howard, joined by my co-host, Dan Sell. Thanks for joining us this week. Dan, where are we headed? Well, Wade, we are headed to Roscoe, Texas, with a man named Chase Shuhard. Uh, we're going to discuss some some major points about soil health and then also the benefits of using a uh, cotton baler on cotton versus the old style. Chase, how you doing tonight? Doing great. How you doing? Doing good, Dan. Yourself? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks for thanks for coming on the show, Chase. Absolutely. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, no problem. Chase, why don't we start out? Tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what you do right now. Well, I am a cotton farmer in Roscoe, Texas, and uh, I didn't grow up on the farm. I grew, grew up in Lubbock, actually, and my parents weren't involved in ag, but I married into this thing, and uh, it's been good. So my uh, father-in-law, he's cotton and wheat farmer. We are probably about 50% irrigation, 50% dry land. We have grown a little corn in the past, but between the wild hogs and the bad price of corn. We haven't done that in a while, other than getting held out. If we get held out, then sometimes we'll plant some corn. But um, grew a little sunflowers last year just to see if that would work out. And we, I don't know, we still don't really know if that worked very well. I think we'll just stick with wheat for right now. But that's uh, that's kind of what we're doing, cotton wheat rotation. We're no-till um, as much as we can. You know, there is some light tillage in places and we're kind of geared up and focused on soil health right now. So that's what we're doing. Soil health. That is always a big subject for the farmers that are smart, uh, <laughs> <laughs> including yourself. I'm not trying to be rude or anything, but tell us a little bit about that, uh, Chase, because it seems every now and then you come up with a post that really is is explaining what goes on, and it seems like that's a very important uh, subject for for you and your farm. Tell us a little yeah, about, so about that. So I'll give you a little history about our operation, and and I guess <clears throat> in saying this, going back to the beginning, I've actually only been back farming for this is going to be my seventh crop, I believe. My first crop was in 2014, um, but uh, my father in law, he he started doing a little bit of no till or start planting a little cover crop to keep the sand from blowing. Because as you know, especially in cotton farming here, <clears throat> the sand will blow out your cotton. So you run sand fighters all the time when you're doing a lot of tillage. And so probably 20, 25 years ago, he started planting wheat as a cover just to keep the sand from blowing. And then he just kind of morphed over time to actually growing wheat and combining wheat and then actually rotating crops and not just doing continuous cotton. And we've been pretty no-till. Um, well, we went from, you know, we went from conventional tillage and then he went to, to a strip-till situation. And he was strip-till where he was back-to-back cotton, but he was no-till where he was cotton and wheat. And then we've been pretty much 100% no-till for about five years. Um, we sold the strip-till rig probably five years ago. So that's, that's kind of where it all started and where it began. And we were pretty happy with doing the cotton wheat rotation because cotton does really well 
in that situation yields much better and it's more resilient to drought. Um, even though if you get zero rain at all, it's not really going to make a huge difference on dry land. But, uh, I guess four years ago, we came across some material about soil health and about cover crops in particular, multi-species cover crops. And so we started exploring that and we, and we planted our first multi-species cover crop four years ago. And so we kind of been going down that road and I guess the hope behind that is that you're improving soil health. You're trying to increase organic matter. You know, you're trying to keep a living root in the ground because that's critical to feeding the microorganisms below the surface. You know, when you feed them, they can, you know, mineralize things and produce, you know, compounds and nutrient for your plants. They can, you know, uh, decrease plant pathogens. You know, they increase organic matter, which increases your water holding capacity. You know, like they say, 1% organic matter gives you an extra inch of, you know, water holding capacity. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, these are just kind of some of the things we're doing, trying to find a way to increase yields, just trying a way to really stay in business, you know. Mm-hmm. So, like where you're over it, is that more sandy soil? We have both. I mean, Roscoe is, is notorious for its clay soils. It's black, you know, you know, everyone calls it the black land here. So around Roscoe is, is pretty heavy clay. And then kind of our, where, you know, where my wife's family's from and our headquarters is just South of Roscoe, about six miles. And when you drop off this flat black land, you get a, to real sandy ground. Mm-hmm real sandy ground there. So, you know, probably half our acres are really sandy and the other half is, is a little darker. Okay. So do y'all, I guess you, you do with erosion quite a bit. What do you do to, to protect that? Like wheat cover crops go a long way for sure, but what else do y'all do to, to help that? I mean, that's, yeah, that's one of the main things is cover crops. Um, no till really, I think that, I think what you're kind of hinting at is we're not necessarily flat. So we do have terraces Mm -hmm. and if you get a really big rain, you know, you can wash out terraces and, and that's kind of a mess, but Uh, for for those um, who don't know, terraces are are like little dams along a hill and that keeps water (laughs) from just literally running down the hill and causing like gullies and, and little rivers, if you will especially in sandy soil, it just creates big messes. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there, yeah, Chase, but I just yeah, wanted no. to explain that. So growing wheat helps. There's no doubt about that. I mean, anytime you have a plant, particularly, you know, a plant that's solid like wheat, you know, not in rows, that helps, you know, it, it you know, its roots and everything kind of keep the soil from washing, <clears throat> but going no-till, is what really kind of helps you from, from having so much erosion, not wind erosion, but water erosion. Um, so it just, the ground's firmer, you know, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people would say are, you know, that it's really hard. You know, a lot of people that are conventional tillage would look at the land we farm and they would, they would just think we were crazy. Cause you know, when it does dry out, it gets really hard. Um, mm-hmm. but it doesn't really wash because we don't plow, you know, if we, if we were plowing and we got a big rain, it would wash, to as deep as you plowed. Yeah. So I, I would say, 
you know, the wheat is keeps, you know, keeps it from washing. It also keeps some sand from blowing and then just going no-till really, really reduces, um, how much rainfall washes Mm -hmm. the soil. Do y'all, uh, do y'all have any cattle that graze on that as well? Or are y'all completely just doing it the way with farming and all? No, we don't have any cattle. No. And, you know, like we can get into that a little bit, but you know, the Holy grail of kind of the soil health and cover crop program is at some point incorporating some sort of grazing animal, mm-hmm. but almost none of our late land is fenced off. And there's a lot of guys, you know, that throw up hot wire and stuff, but I don't know. We, <laughs> we're not there yet. Chase, and, would goats be an ideal animal to graze on that stuff? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I, I just went to a, I ought to plug this actually. There's a, I went to a no-till symposium in Lubbock about a month ago and there's, there was a couple guys there that are using sheep and they're having a lot of success with that. I mean, goats would be great, great too. You know, goats are hard as heck to corral. I mean, yeah. I know nothing about livestock. I'm, I'm just looking out for Dan here. Just, just making sure everything's in the Gosh dang it, Wade. You're just really helpful. You know that. Are we talking about Elise getting a goat or what? Ah. Uh, well, we got to make probably, sure she can run them in Booker. <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's going to be a goat herd on my land anytime soon. Sorry. Sorry, so Wade. Back to Chase. <laughs> yeah, let's go back to Chase. I like that idea. <laughs> yeah, but goats would do great. And that, yeah, I hear sheep are a good one. Uh, obviously, cattle. But I don't know. I don't know. We're pretty bought in and sold on soil health, but that's another, that's a tough pill to swallow. Like a kind of a funny story. My father-in-law grew up with livestock. I mean, not a lot. They, you know, they were farmers, but they had back then everyone had 20 or 30 cows, you know, Mm -hmm. and his, his dad and his brother were not necessarily great cowboys. And I don't think they had great fencing or anything. And Randall just has Mm -hmm. terrible memories of dealing with cows. Mm -hmm. And so when he got old enough that he had, the opportunity to have some say in that business, you know, the first thing he wanted to do is get rid of those daggum cows. <laughs> so he, we, he got rid of those cows and we've been tearing down fences ever since. So we've, we've pretty much shot ourselves in the foot as far as trying to bring cattle back into the operation. Oh yeah, totally. So you, you talked about micro in it, microorganisms uh, mm-hmm. in the soil for those who don't really know what that are you want to explain that a little bit and more in depth i can try i mean you know i don't have a soil science degree or anything uh no but... no we're not judging or anything. It's just <laughs> some people might not understand what that is so just, you know just layman terms <clears throat> yeah you know i guess i feel like a lot of guys kind of on a tangent here but a lot of guys that are conventional tillage you know they don't really look at the as the soil as really soil in my opinion it's just you know this material that you grow plants in you know cotton or wheat or whatever and but i can tell you there's you know you have bacteria and you have you have fungus or fungi and that's critically important you know you know all those things are are decomposing they're they're working with the plants like for for example fungus which is critical in soil particularly mycorrhiza fungus mm-hmm. is critical in that it has a symbiotic relationship with the roots 
So what fungus can do that roots can't do is it, it is so small and microscopic that it can, it can get into places in the soil that roots can't, whether that's minerals or it can work its way into little cavities to get water or even nutrient. And it'll trade that for, for carbon from the roots. Most of the microorganisms in the soil will, will trade carbon with stuff that plants want. So you have fungus and bacteria. And if you're, you know, if you're heavy tillage, there's a, there's a ratio of bacteria to fungus. And if you're, you know, if you have lower organic matter and you're in a heavy tillage situation, you have very little fungus. I mean, almost none. And you have a high bacteria system, which is not necessarily good. You know, ideally you'll, you'd want to work your way towards a ratio that's almost equal parts bacteria and fungi. But that's like, you know, you're talking about like an undisturbed forest situation, mm-hmm. something that'd be really hard to replicate in a farming situation. But that's one part of it. You know, you have all, all sorts of other organisms. You know, you have, obviously you have worms. You know, most people associate healthy soil with earthworms. I think that's mainly because that's one of the only organisms you can see with a naked eye. You know, if you go out there and you can find earthworms, that's a good sign that you're headed in the right direction, you know, and, mm-hmm. and most of these things are decomposers, whether that's decomposing plant roots or plant parts, or they're decomposing each other. They're feeding off of each other and they're recycling nutrients and they're creating compounds <clears throat> that can be fed back into the plant. And when they're also breaking this stuff down, it's also creating organic matter. Mm-hmm. So you have, you know, protozoa, which I don't even know what those are. You know, you have, <laughs> you have like mites and anthropods and like things like spiders, like small, you know, small type spider type things. You have nematodes, which a lot of people have heard of, you know, a lot of people have negative opinions of nematodes. They think of nematodes, they think of like root rot nematode, which can be catastrophic to certain crops, particularly cotton. I mean, cotton is is can get killed by root rot nematode. But in our kind of when we've been educating ourselves and stuff and you come across nematodes, you know, 90 plus percent of nematodes are beneficials. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that you have something like a root rot nematode, which is a parasite, that's kind of a red flag that your so the soil is not very healthy because nematodes, their main job is decomposition. And so they, they eat everything. <laughs> they eat bacteria, they eat fungus, they eat roots, they eat plant parts. They also eat other nematodes, which is interesting because mm-hmm. they're, they're, their role in the system is kind of like a cleaning. They're like a cleaning agent. Like they clean all the trash out, mm-hmm. you know, and they, and they, they digest it and they return it back to the soil and to the plants. Mm-hmm. So like there is a particular nematode that I said feeds on other nematodes and so its job is actually to feed on nematodes that are parasitic to plants. So, I mean, as you improve soil health, that's one of the things you can do to reduce, you know, plant pathogens and parasites. It's kind of a, and I'm not saying you're ever going to get to a perfect system, but, you know, that's kind of the idea. Yeah. You know, is you, you get all this stuff going and working together. I get you. 
wow that that's that's a lot and i and i i appreciate the the detail in that because not you're right not a whole lot of farmers they see it i mean honestly i do too at some at some point in the level i just see it as hey that's what i'm going to plant my uh milo or wheat into and so you know it's chase i've, chase, I've got a question you made the comment that y'all you've educated yourselves on on what's going on. So, how important is it for the type of farming y'all do to to be educated and be aware of of what's going on down there? And how do you how do you receive that education? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I've I've got kind of a strong opinion about this. I, I've had this thought recently. Like, you know, every it seems like every profession out there has continuing education. You know, and in farming, you have to do CEUs for say your pesticides license, you know, or you go to, you know, big meetings, seed meetings, and all these other meetings that it talks about seed varieties. It talks about herbicides and all this. And I really wish people would educate themselves on farming practices and on soil health, because I think it's just really critical. I mean, like the, what we're doing as farmers is not a, I mean, no one takes this responsibility lightly. I want to say that first and foremost. And, you know, I haven't been to a, I haven't been, been to a single meeting with farmers that, you know, they always open with a prayer, which is really, was really cool as a profession. Almost nobody does that anymore, but it is always just, you know, a thankfulness and gratitude that they get to do this job and that they get to be stewards of the land and, and I know that guys believe that to their core, but I feel like, you know, if you really want to take that stewardship to heart, you know, you really need to educate yourself on soil health because, you know, this, the land that produces, you know, our income and our livelihood, it's, it's complicated. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it can, it can be, you know, you can have a, you impact it, you can impact it positively, you can impact it negatively. Um, you know, I take stewardship very seriously, you know, and I, I know everyone does, but I just wish that they would they'd self-educate more. I guess getting back to your question, you have to seek this information out because it's not, I mean, nothing's hard to find because we live in the age we live in. You can get on the computer and find anything you want. There's a lot of great information on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you really have to actively seek out this information. Uh, I just went to this conference in Lubbock I mentioned earlier. You know, there's a, there's a group that formed, you know, in the Panhandle or Southern Plains area. They formed an organization called No-Till Texas, and they put on an annual conference every year called the Soil Health Symposium. And this year was in Lubbock, and next year is in Amarillo. And I feel if anyone that's listening to this has any interest in this, that is an amazing symposium. I mean, it's two days, it's like $60 and you can go from knowing nothing to knowing just about what you need to know to get started on this journey. Like it's, it's a great conference and it's, and it started by like five or six guys that were all doing this independently in their own silos. And they were, you know, that, you know, that's a problem that we have where we are is that, we sometimes you feel like you're on an island. I mean, we're not the only people practicing no-till around here, but we're pretty much the only people around here that are taking it to this next level with the multi-species covers. 
Uh, and it's just, I mean, the entire state of Texas, I'd be shocked if there was more than like 20 people doing what we're doing. Um, but I feel like this is the direction that agriculture needs to take, you know, moving forward. I think this is kind of what the consumers uh, expect out of us. Mm-hmm. You know, sustainability means a thousand different things and it's hard to really define what it really means. But the way we like to define it is it's tied to soil health. You know, you, you know, we, I know people probably, you know, follow Jay Hill. He's always talking about sequestering carbon, you know, and being carbon negative. And that's kind of a unique opportunity that farming has is that I can't think of any other industry that can actually take carbon out of the air and put it in the soil. Yeah. Like it's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, I get you. That's, that's really cool. But you're not, you can't do it if you just plow the ground six times a year. Yeah. You got to quit plowing the ground. Uh, you, you mentioned being a part of a, uh, of a, uh, a, a program, correct? A, a cotton, it's called the, you were, you were speaking about Rolling Plains Cotton Growers, correct? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I work with, or, you know, the, the Rolling Plains Cotton Growers. What, what does that entail? Well, you know, I, what I put about there is I, there, I put that there's an important element in, in service and in serving your industry. Mm-hmm. So the Rolling Plains Cotton Growers is, you know, there's, there's these, I don't know what the technical name is for these things, but for every commodity, whether you're cotton or wheat or corn or whatever, there's, you know, there's groups all around Texas and all around the country that exist to, you know, protect your interest. For the most part, they're, they're there to, you know, to work with decision makers, whether it's with, you know, state legislature or in Washington, D.C. You know, you know, they're there to educate decision makers, to advocate on behalf of farmers, mm-hmm. to make sure our interests are known and protected. Uh, I think that stuff is critically important. I mean, you, <clears throat> you know, it's funny. I got into this. My father-in-law is real big into to serving on different sectors of the industry. And I always thought, well, I, you know, I'm just this kid from the city and, and I'm young mm-hmm. and, you know, there, there's surely there's just tons of people that are out there, you know, involved in these things that have, decades of experience or they've grown up on the farm and all this stuff. But the more I'm involved in this, I've come to find that there's just very few producers out there that are, that are volunteering or serving in these groups. And it's critically important because I think, I think a lot of people, I know a lot of guys locally where I live, um, they think us, you know, someone else is doing that. Someone else is watching my back, Mm -hmm. you know, somebody else, you know, but the reality is, there's there there isn't i mean you know like in an area you live in there may be just a handful of producers that are actively involved in those organizations mm-hmm. and you know i i just feel like i really want to get that message out there to people who listen to this other producers i really want to encourage you whatever you grow wherever you live <clears throat> to find those groups and participate in those i mean not only is it great for you to be able to influence and and talk with decision makers and protect your industry. 
but it's also fun. I mean, they're, they're, when they find someone that, that wants to be involved, they oftentimes send you on leadership training. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been sent to Washington, D.C. a couple of times. Uh, just, I just went to New Orleans uh, last month for a National Council meeting. I'm going to North Carolina here in two weeks to Cotton Incorporated. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're so desperate for people that want to be involved. I just really want to get that message out there to encourage uh, producers to, to be involved in those organizations. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Uh, you, you, you spoke a little bit about like uh, challenges in the past and, and what all that entails. And I know for a fact that cotton strippers are uh, extremely expensive and John yeah. Deere holds the market on that and they aren't ever going to uh, let go of that unless case is able to come out with something that's, worth spending money on, which in my opinion is, is never going to happen, but uh, moving on, <laughs> uh, y'all, y'all just got a, a newer stripper here recently and, and y'all a cotton bale stripper and, uh, right. they, they are so technologically advanced versus like a basket, uh, and, and all that entails with module making and all. So how do you, how do you like the machine itself? And, do you see the opportunity for, for the price to go down ever? Or do you think Don, John Deere is just going <laughs> to hold the price and, and think they can just keep going with it? What do you think? Yeah, I, I don't think there's any chance the price is going down. I mean, every year they add some worthless gadget we don't need and bump mm-hmm. the price up $10,000. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the thing started at like 640000 yeah. I think they're now up to six hundred eighty thousand. Mm-hmm. They had they had like a thousand dollar piece of metal in a sensor, and they raised the price ten thousand dollars. Yeah, but um, yeah, we we got our first CS six ninety or the stripper baler. Uh, I guess da, 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 three years ago. Um, yeah, that was interesting. <laughs> I mean there's a lot of pros to it. I mean, we, you don't need as many people. That's a, that's a, that's a bonus. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we can run longer, you know, our, 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 when we had good weather, like when, if you have perfect weather, you could run 24 hours a day. Yeah. You know, you need, you need, you, know, you need the humidity to be at or below 50% in stripper cotton. And you don't get a whole lot of those days, um, but hopefully you get about five or 10 of those days. Mm-hmm. And back when we had the basket stripper, we would just have to quit no matter what, like at nine o'clock at night, because we'd all been out there since seven or eight in the morning and we're just worn out. I mean, that's just yeah. no way around it. I mean, you know, there's a lot of funny stories, you know, you know, in our operation, there's three of us, there's me, there's Randall, my father-in-law and there's Juan. Mm-hmm there's been a lot of funny stories about, you know, Juan is just tired, <laughs> you know, and his job has always been the bull buggy guy and he's just amazing at running the bull buggy. But there's been many times where he's just like, the stripper guy wants to keep going and you turn around to dump your basket and Juan's turned off all the tractors and kill all the lights. He's just like, I'm, I'm going home. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he's just he worn out, you know? So, you know, that's been one of the benefits, like, you know, I used to run the stripper or Randall used to run the stripper or Laura's cousin. 
and one of the other one of us would be doing something else, you know, building modules or doing the bull buggy. But now because we have no bull buggy, we have no module builder, we just rotate drivers. I mean, we actually ran um, one time this year, we got into that perfect weather. Uh, we actually ran about th- in thir- you know, I wouldn't say 36 hours straight because we did stop for a few hours to clean the machine. Mm-hmm. But we, we did about a week's worth of stripping in a weekend. Wow. Like that's a game amazing. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Being able to run 24-7 is amazing. Explain the difference betw- between a, a baler and, and like an old basket stripper for those who might not know much about the cotton industry. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, for, gosh, forever, there was the basket stripper so, you know, you strip the cotton in a stripper cotton, it goes through a cleaner um, where it removes the burr and then it throws the lint back into a basket. And so you strip until you fill the basket full. And then when the basket's full, you stop in a, in a bull buggy drives up a tractor with a buggy drives up by, beside you and you dump the basket into the bull buggy. And mm-hmm. then you let the basket back down and then you go back to stripping. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we always figured that every time you got full and you had to dump, assuming that your bull buggy guy was Johnny on the spot, that would take you two and a half minutes probably. And so you fast forward now to where we have this stripper baler. So what's going on in the stripper baler is that the cotton is stripped. It's gone through the cleaner to remove the burr. And then the cotton goes into the first stage of the machine, which they call the accumulator. And what that does is it just accumulates cotton. So what it does is it it's empty and then it fills up with cotton. And then when it fills up, a sensor tells the machine the accumulator is full and it feeds cotton from the bottom of the accumulator into the baler of the machine. And the baler is pretty much identical to like a hay baler, like a round hay baler. It's just, it's, it's just larger. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what it does, so it, so it feeds that cotton to the baler and it builds a little bell. And then it, when the accumulator is empty, it stops feeding and it waits for the accumulator to fill back up. And so to make a big round bell of cotton, you have to, you have to do that cycle. At least, I think it's about three times where you fill the accumulator up, empty it, fill it up, empty it and so on. So you do about three cycles there and then you make a bell of cotton that's I'm I'm I think it's 94 inches in diameter, and then you've got to somehow eject it. So what it does is it's got to wrap it. It's got to wrap it. Otherwise, if you eject it unwrapped, it would just it would just explode <laughs> as soon as the baler opened, which happens when you have a miswrap. Mm-hmm. But so it has this plastic that it that it wraps around the bell. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it wraps it. I think it has three wraps around. I, I can't, I, I think it's three wraps. Yeah, the plastic goes around the bell three times and it's got a sticky adhesive that it sticks to itself. And that creates enough friction and tension that the pressure of the bell, which is at a high, high pressure, mm-hmm. cannot bust the plastic. When it does that, then it ejects that round bell wrapped in plastic onto the tailgate. Then you set that on the ground. And so you, basically basically you can strip cotton without ever stopping so like i said it took two and a half minutes you know to dump a basket into a bull buggy 
Right. Now you never stop. That two minutes, that two and a half minutes you would have been stopped, you already stripped a bell of cotton. Uh-huh. So I mean you in yeah. a day's time, in a day's time, you'll do fifty to sixty percent more harvesting than you would have done in the old system. Right. And plus you don't have to pay for for a guy running your buggy or your module builder, because that's two different separate jobs. And then the guys I've worked with, they had uh, another, I think is two guys that would tarp the modules and that is a job oh, yeah. within itself. Oh my. Oh yeah. Yeah. We used to, you know, we had a guy on a stripper, a guy on the bull buggy and we had a guy on the module builder and then we had an extra person by the module builder that helped tarp, uh, you know, help tarp, help move, you know, when you pull off that module mm-hmm. and help all that, there'd be a minimum of four people out there. Minimum. Yeah. And, you know, and, and we, you know, that was a, you, that was a real simple setup. You know, we just had one stripper, one module builder, you know, a lot of guys, you know, our size had multiple machines. I mean, yeah. you would have eight, 10 guys out there easy. I mean, some people would have 15 people out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, what really comes to handy on that deal is not so much the labor when you're harvesting. It's really the labor when you're not harvesting. Like if you get a good rain and it'll harvest, you're not paying, you know, three guys, you know, whatever you're paying them, you know, for eight, 10 hour days for them to not work. So that's been one thing that's been interesting is like when we catch a good rain, we don't get nearly as stressed out. I mean, we just, you know, everyone's on the, you know, everyone's me, Randall, Juan, we're all full-time employees, you know, we'll find something else to do, or maybe we'll just take a a well-deserved break for a day or two. Mm-hmm. Um, so the labor thing is not an issue. I mean, the, the real expense that's been added on that thing is the wrap, that actual plastic wrap. That's been the mm-hmm. main problem with that machine is how expensive that wrap is because yeah. the fuel, the machine uses a lot of fuel, but it's roughly the same as all that other equipment did. Like say if a, if a baler uses like 20 gallons an hour, it's, I mean, it's like a big combine, you know, it's like 500 horsepower diesel, but you know, that uses a lot more than the old machine, but then again, you don't have a tractor on the bull buggy and you don't have a tractor on the module builder. So all those things added up to about the fuel of this machine. So really the main expense difference is that plastic wrap, which is about 10 or $11 a bell. Yeah. And, and John Deere is trying to come out with a more economical wrap. There's been some generics out there that John Deere, frequently kind of squashes to get off the market. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it it's, seems it's like, kind of, it's kind of like a tax on every bell you make, you know, it's like yeah. a $10 tax on every bell you make. Yeah. It seems like just John Deere in general, if they hold the mark, they, they, they have the corner on the market on, on when it comes to, to cotton, cotton yeah. machines. Cause case case has one and I've, I've seen one run and I mean, I can't speak without having a bias, but it just does not seem very well built compared to, to, to the Baylor. But yeah, I mean, I haven't been around them hardly at all. I mean, there's, you know, peer, you know, every now and then there's a custom guy that comes in from the Southeast. That's got a case mm-hmm. and I think they're fine. I mean, they, you know, they've got a picker and they make these like, they don't have a round Baylor. They make these like half size modules. Uh huh. It's, it's different. It's different. I mean, I don't know. They, they're not a player right now at all. Yeah, they aren't. One thing that you you mentioned about is is labor. How how hard is it to come up with like good labor? Because I know around here, uh, for our farm, we don't have any outside labor, uh, just because we we do well with just the family. But I bet for y'all side, y'all are y'all are a bit different operation. How hard is it to come up with actual good labor that 
have initiative and uh, other things as well that come along with that. Yeah, I mean it's it's really hard. You know, we we are we are really fortunate on labor. Like like I've told you, our our set, our, you know, our our business. We basically have you know us three employees, and Laura has two cousins that just work seasonally for us, like on nights and weekends mm-hmm. that are unbelievable. I mean, they can, they can do everything, you know, they can run the stripper, they can run the sprayer, they can plant, you know, we're so fortunate to have them to help us. I mean, but they're the kind of labor that we need, you know, those high skilled guys, people you can communicate with people that can learn new equipment, new technologies, in our area, there's the labor thing is just is becoming more of a problem. I mean, most of the farmhands in our area are, you know, probably in their last ten years of of their careers, you know, mm-hmm. and there's just not a there's not a there's not a flush of younger hands that they're just not there. I mean, mm-hmm. the guys that grew up, you know, the guys that are hands right now, their children, mm-hmm. you know, fortunately have, have done things, you know, have gone to college and have good careers and, 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 you know, they, you know, they don't want to hoe weeds and stuff, you know, and I don't blame them, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a big problem. I mean, like, a uh, couple guys have explored like doing that H2A program. Mm-hmm. There's a few, there's a few guys around here that are from South Africa that come here seasonally. Um, mm-hmm. Our gin brought in a crew from Australia this past year. Mm-hmm. It's just, yeah, there's, you know, it's just becoming more and more of a problem. And, you know, as the border and everything kind of tightens up down there, uh, it just gets harder. You know, and most Americans don't want to be farm labor. It's pretty tough. But, you know, one thing, you know, I would say is, like I mentioned, the, the, the labor force of the future is different than the labor force of the past. Like what we need moving forward, as I mentioned, is guys that can, can be trusted to run some sophisticated equipment and then can learn and you can communicate with like, um, you know, the guy that works with us, he's fantastic at what he does, but he's having a hard time adapting to some of the newer technologies. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be one thing that's going to change. I think in the future, Mm-hmm. which in, in, in to, to on a positive note, I would say if you're young and you want to farm, there's a lot of opportunity, like a lot of opportunity. And, you know, and some of these, some of these new farmhand jobs don't pay as bad as you'd think. Like there's a lot of guys getting paid a lot more than I got paid with the college degree. <laughs> yeah. I'm, you know, I'm not kidding. You know, so you know, Laura's cousin, he's at tech, he's a heck of a farmer and he's going to make, you know, he's going to be a, a, you know, he's going to be a farmer, a real farmer, but you know, in the meantime, he'll probably be a hand, but he's going to make a good, good living because there is just no competition for good labor. There's none. He kind of corners the market. <laughs> he can kind of ask what he wants to ask for. Yeah. Yeah, I understand that. It's it's difficult to have or find good labor for sure. I agree. Chase, uh, I want to switch gears here a bit and, and move to some social media stuff. Um, you, mm-hmm. You're pretty active on the Instagram. Um, 
at C Shuhard S C H U C H A R D for those of you out there listening. Um, it'll be linked in the show notes below. But why is it so important to you as a as a farmer in in kind of West Central Texas to to be active on social media to to share your story of what you do on a day to day basis? Yeah, you know, it kind of goes back to the, some of the comments I made earlier about being involved in service organizations and and doing what you can to pr- promote your your industry and promote agriculture. You know, I got involved. I've been on all the social media platforms since the inception. You know, <laughs> it's one thing I brag about. I I got on Facebook in 2005. I think it was invented like in 2003 or something. Uh, I was on Instagram in 2011, but you know, I didn't start posting anything about farming until last spring. And I don't know why, I don't know why it never really occurred to me, but for whatever reason, I decided to do that. And I I think I mainly did it because since I am someone who grew up in the city and most of my friends are not involved in agriculture, I thought that it would just be a good way for me to show what I do on a daily basis to people that are in the city, because I, I just wanted people to know that there's, there's nothing going on around here. That's, that's not, you know, that's not good. Like, you know, there's this notion that, that for some reason or another, like agriculture has like a, you know, some bad public perception. I, I, and I think it's mainly because you have just an aging demographic of farmers that aren't involved on social media at all. And, you know, there's no, you know, they had, they had no way to, communicate what they were doing so you kind of had a one-sided discussion that was kind of negative towards our industry and so i just got on there and and if you'll notice a lot of mine are kind of educational like i kind of try to talk in layman's terms and dumb things down and which is convenient because (laughs) since i didn't grow up doing this sometimes i don't necessarily know like perfectly what i'm doing or or exactly how the machines or equipment is set up. I mean, I have a good idea, but you know, it's easy for me to talk like that because you know, this isn't second nature to me. So I'm, I'm still kind of learning as I go now, but an interesting outcome to that was I've had so many friends that live in the city have, they just send me comments that that how much they really enjoy it. Like they, they enjoy seeing it and they ask me lots of really good questions. And that's the, really the reason why I do it. Um, mainly education, may, mainly to show that, you know, we're doing things the right way. We, you know, we are not by any means trying to do anything, you know, bad. We, we, you know, we spray almost no pesticides. I mean, like as far as insecticides go, almost none you know, you know, as far as like killing bees and stuff like that, like we, we spray like basically none. <laughs> so like, um, I just want people to know that like in, in, in then getting involved in kind of this little niche on Instagram has been kind of fun. Like, you know, meeting people like farmer Dan, you know, and all these guys, it really has, I don't know. I just feel like, I just feel like if you're, if you're, if you're tuning into agriculture and you're seeing some of these younger guys out there, I don't know. I just feel like there's, I, I, I just feel positive when I see all that, you know, you know, that's, yeah. that's, it's, it's advocation is what it is. That's what we're all about. And, 
it's interesting. You know, I didn't actually know who you were till till last. What was that? Two years ago, I think. When uh, I think it was probably. I think it was probably like May. (laughs) Oh, really? What's I haven't I haven't even known you a year. Okay, well, I got a hat from you, and I I'm actually wearing that hat right now. I actually went and found it. You know, I'm just I'm just pointing that out. You just dusted it right out of the box. Yeah, 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 great. I I have favorite hats. I've always assumed that's the hat you wore on dates. Is what I assumed you did with that thing. It gets girls like you wouldn't. I'm sure it got. Well, how many do you need? Just one. That's all we're going for. Just one. And uh, no, I just wanted to point that out. You know, I haven't followed you for a whole lot of time, but I do know that you do post a lot of informational stuff on your. Instagram. I think one of my most favorite posts that you had was it was literally a piece of paper and you talked about the planted acres in the U.S. and then you actually drew a graph uh, or, or something close to that about the U.S. dollar versus wheat versus corn, soybeans and cotton and mm-hmm. what all entails and how much it's worth per acre and all that. And yeah. that got a lot of feedback from Instagram. I was I was mainly impressed with that for sure. And, and you know, like like I said, it's all about aggregation and there's there's plenty of pages out there on Instagram that are about ag- agriculture but a lot of them including myself a lot of times aren't very informational other than just this is a 8360R and that's <laughs> it you know and so no. that's yeah. one thing I appreciate about your 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 account is you're very informationable about what's going on Yeah no I you yeah People love your account. I think it's just because you have such a good personality and you're so wow. positive. <laughs> um, but, you know, one thing, you know, to the people that listen to this, and I feel like a lot of our buddies on Instagram are going to listen to this thing. Mm-hmm. I want to encourage people, you don't have to be education or whatever, but I do want people to, to consider that, you know, you represent this industry and just do what you can, you know, to just to, to show it in a positive light. And, you know, I think some of the guys, like I know, you know, they grew up on the farm and, you know, I know people that's like, all my friends are farmers. I'm like, man, I have like no friends that are farmers. Like all my friends are in the city. And I guess Mm -hmm. that's why I do what I do. But I, I do want to encourage everybody that's out there just to, just to promote ag positively. And, And just like, when you're doing stupid stuff, like just realize like the rest of the world is seeing you do stupid stuff, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I I do that a lot, uh, but I totally just, agree. Just you know? mainly, just mainly, like when you dive headfirst into a crop or something. Yeah, that's a that's a farmland <laughs> crap check for sure. I, I I'm just uh, waiting I for agree. you to dive into some cotton stocks because that's not going to feel that very would good. probably take my life right there <laughs> for sure. Uh, Chase, we've had a great conversation here. You're you're very knowledgeable about agriculture as a whole. Uh, I'm I'm. And extremely impressed by what you've talked of, especially since no offense, you're, you're basically a city kid. And yeah, pretty that's, much, right? That's a really cool thing about you is is you took it in stride. You 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 took the farm from where it was, and you've you've been able to share it with not only just agriculturists such as myself, but but with people who have no understanding about farming. And and like I've I've been I've said this three times now. <clears throat> it's all about advocation, and that's what our our podcast is about. And so, you know, in closing, Chase, if, if you had one thing to say to to whoever's listening here, uh, what would you want to end up with? And also plug in your your Instagram in the end, if you wouldn't mind, so people can go follow you. 
That's a great question. Um, I guess I want to say a few things. Okay. The, I want to, you know, and we can touch on this. This is kind of a funny subject, but you know, Bloomberg, when he, you know, that thing came out a few weeks ago about how he can teach anyone to be a farmer, you know? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good subject. (laughs) I'm not necessarily going to touch on that, but what I will say, my favorite part about farming is that it's taught me so much about other things. Mm-hmm. Like you have to know how to grow plants. I mean, in, and I guess I didn't say, but my background is in horticulture. Mm-hmm. I just wasn't growing row crops, but mm-hmm. you know, I knew kind of sort of how to grow plants. You got to do that. You got to understand the business side of things. You got to understand accounting, you know, you got to understand marketing. You got to understand you know, the farm bill and legislation and how that affects your farm, crop insurance, weather, mm-hmm. you know, all that stuff, all that, you got to put all that together, you know, and I'm an irrigated farmer. So I had to learn how to plumb and how to do electrician, you know, mm-hmm. you put all that together and that's how you become a good farmer. I mean, that's, that's a pretty diverse set of skills, you know? Yeah. And, and that's what makes it kind of keeps it interesting, kind of keeps you on your toes. Um, that's probably been my favorite part of this profession is it makes you a well-rounded individual, you know? Mm-hmm. But uh, so I guess that's my main deal right there. And then the other thing, going back to soil health, just to tie it all together, you know, I would encourage people to, to try to, self-educate a little bit on the soil health. If you're in Texas, if you're in West Texas, I would encourage you to go to the no-till symposium, which is in February in Amarillo next year. And if you don't know how to find that information, find me on Instagram and I'll help you find that information. Mm-hmm. And like you said, I'm, you know, I'm not, I don't really do a whole lot on Facebook anymore. It's basically been dominated by old people now. But, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I've moved on to Instagram. I'm not, I'm not going to do TikTok. I think I'm, I think I'm like, just, I'm hitting that point in my life that I think I'm stuck now. I'm like what I'm stuck with. So mm-hmm. I'm on Instagram and, uh, it's my, it, it's C and then my last name Shuhard. So it's C S C H U C H A R D. I'll try to become more active. I've been kind of in a lull, but I, uh, we're getting busy again, spraying and we're going to start doing some things. So I should get pretty active here pretty soon. Mm-hmm. Well, we want to thank you for, for being on our show. And, uh, I mean, wow, I, I'm just impressed with, with the knowledge you have of everything because I mean, coming from just a regular <laughs> old farm boy, you know, a whole lot more than I do. <laughs> and so it's kind of humbling for me as well. And I, I really do appreciate you being on the show. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Advocates. Be sure and check out our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages to see who we'll feature next. On behalf of Dan, I'm Wade. We'll see you next time. <laughs>